Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries, the podcast series that probes aviation accidents. I'm your pilot and host, Desmond Latham. This episode covers the terrifying examples of fire on board commercial airliners. One of the first was the Imperial Airways Armstrong Argosy incident in Dixmude, Belgium in 1933, where a fire thought to have been started by a passenger caused the plane to crash, killing all 15 on board. It was the deadliest accident at that point in the history of British civil aviation. It is also thought to be one of the first airliners ever lost due to possible sabotage. When you'll hear the story, perhaps you'll agree with the findings at the time during the investigation. Everything centered around one passenger by the name of Albert Foss, who was seen to jump from the aircraft as it came down over the Belgian countryside. Imperial's London-Brussels-Cologne route had been flown since 1928 without incident, but on the 28th of March 1933, the plane was travelling from Brussels to London, taking it over the northern Flanders region before it was supposed to cross the coast for the 50-mile flight across the English Channel. The plane was delayed and eventually took off at 12.30 in the afternoon. While flying over Flanders, onlookers saw flames burst from the fuselage before the aircraft lost altitude and plunged to the ground. As the Armstrong Argosy biplane slipped from the sky, a passenger was seen falling from the rear. Someone had jumped. But that someone didn't have a parachute. It was a German called Albert Foss, who had immigrated to England, where he worked as a dentist in Manchester. However, the investigation revealed that the fire had not started in the engines, where fires were known to start, or near the fuel tanks and the wings. The flames grew from the rear of the plane, either in the lavatory or the luggage area, which in those days used to be in the rear of the cabin itself. The investigators believed the cause was some kind of combustible material carried either by a passenger or crew member, which had somehow burst into flame. Foss's estranged brother gave evidence at the inquest, and he was not exactly a neutral observer. According to Foss's brother, Albert was to blame, saying the German had undertaken suspicious business trips to buy anesthetics masking his real business, which was drug smuggling. The English Metropolitan Police in Manchester were aware of the rumours. Worse, Foss had apparently roped his niece into the nefarious activity, which accounted for his brother's anger. Apparently, the two alleged drug smugglers were aware that the police were awaiting their arrival in Manchester and Foss sought to escape from the authorities by destroying the aircraft and escaping by bailing out. The only problem with the theory is that there was no parachute, but he was one of the only passengers who had very few burns on his body. The inquest jury eventually returned an open verdict which indicated the deaths were not accidental, but there was not enough evidence to find Foss guilty. Fourteen others, included his niece, died, if that was indeed his dark plan. Another example of an accident that was caused by crew actions combined with a design fault was the United Airlines Flight 608 Douglas DC-6 on the 24th of October 1947. The four-engine plane registration November Charlie 37510 was on a scheduled passenger flight from Los Angeles to Chicago when it crashed just before 12.30 in the afternoon southeast of Brass Canyon Airport in Utah, United States. Five crew and 47 passengers died, all on board. It was also the deadliest air crash in the United States at the time and caused by a fire on board. The pilot, Captain Everett L. McMillan, radioed flight control at Brass Canyon Airport in Utah, saying there was a fire in the baggage compartment which was out of control and smoke was filling the cabin, he declared an emergency. 
As the Douglas DC-6 descended, pieces of the right wing began to fall off and one of the emergency flares on the right wing ignited. The pilot was heard to say, We can make it, approaching a strip. But that's when the wind put pay to his attempts. The plane passed over the canyon Mesa approximately at 1,400 meters from the airstrip when gusts from the canyon floor flowing over the side of the Mesa pulled the aircraft out of control. At that stage, it was flying at only 10 feet and it plowed into the ground. Witnesses say the back door was open and occupants were throwing luggage out in a last-ditch attempt to lighten the load. An edition of the Bridgeport, Connecticut Post reported the incident in this way. Trailing smoke and flame for at least 22 miles before it crashed, the giant ship plowed a smoke-blackened swathe for 800 yards alongside State Highway 22, just east of Bryce Canyon Airport. The engines, scorched and twisted, were thrown up to 300 feet beyond the burned area, while a piece of the tail was the largest part of the aircraft remaining. Bodies were thrown across the 7,300-foot plateau. Some were found in the 200-foot-deep canyon just beyond the impact point. It was the cause that gave designers of the Douglas DC-6 pause for thought, and as with all accidents, safety was improved. But it took an incident three weeks later for authorities to realize what had happened before they ordered this design change. An American Airlines DC-6 registration November Charlie 90741 on a flight from San Francisco to Chicago with 25 crew and passengers aboard, reported an onboard fire over Arizona and managed to make an emergency landing in flames at the airport at Gallup, New Mexico. All 25 occupants escaped the burning plane and the fire was extinguished. Unlike the Bryce Canyon crash a month earlier, investigators now had a damaged but intact aircraft to examine and study. The cause of both the Bryce Canyon crash and the near-fatal Gallup incident was eventually traced to a design flaw. A cabin heater intake scoop was positioned too close to the number three alternate fuel tank air vent. While in flight, crews allowed a fuel tank to be overfilled during a routine fuel transfer between wing tanks. This could lead to several gallons of excess fuel flowing out of the tank vent and then being sucked into the cabin heater system, which then ignited the fuel. This caused the fire which destroyed the United Aircraft at Bryce Canyon and severely damaged the American Airlines aircraft that landed in flames at Gallup. In the Bryce Canyon crash, the Civil Aeronautics Board found the causes to be the design flaw, as well as inadequate training of the crew about the danger and the failure of the crew to halt the fuel transfer before the tank overflowed. Investigators reconstructed the plane from its wreckage to help determine the cause. By the way, it was a close call for U.S. President Harry S. Truman because at the time, the presidential aircraft was a Douglas DC-6. The entire fleet of 80 in America were grounded, but after a design change, the improved DC-6 was allowed to take to the skies once more. Sometimes lateral thinking by pilots can be fatal if operating procedure is flouted. One of these lateral thinkers was the pilot of Swiss Air Flight SR-306, a Sud Aviation SE-210 Caravelle, which was a scheduled international flight from Zurich to Rome via Geneva. His decisions flew in the face of standard operating procedure and therefore doomed him and his passengers and crew, unfortunately. The Sud Aviation SE-210 crashed near Durnach on September 4, 1963, shortly after takeoff killing all 80 on board. Zurich Airport was foggy that day, and the 0600 flight was delayed. 
The pilot then suggested he would taxi to runway 34 behind an escorting vehicle. This is definitely not standard operating procedure. The crew then said they'd taxi the jet halfway down the runway to inspect the fog and then return to the takeoff point. Meanwhile, the pilot was gunning the jet engines in a vain attempt to blow the fog away. However, at the same time, he was riding the brakes. That's not a clever combination. Thirteen minutes later, and inspection complete, the aircraft took off and began climbing to flight level 150, or 15,000 feet, its cruising altitude. Witnesses on the ground heard the plane and could see white smoke pouring from the left or port wing area. Fire then erupted from the wing, the plane descended and turned before it suddenly lost altitude and went into a final steep dive. At 621, a mayday message was radioed by the captain. A minute later, it crashed into the ground near Doranash, 35 kilometers from Zurich Airport. Everyone on board died. What went wrong? The pilot's decision to taxi using full power against the brakes in an attempt to clear the fog was to blame. This caused the magnesium wheels to become white-hot from the brakes being pressed while running the engines at full throttle. When the landing gear was retracted, hydraulic lines were damaged by the heat. That spilled hydraulic fluid which ignited, which then damaged the gear bay and then the wing. Hydraulic pressure was lost. The aircraft became impossible to control. The cabin and cockpit filled with smoke. All control was lost and all hope too. In a terrible coincidence, This crash killed 43 people out of 217 total population from the tiny village of Hummelkon in the canton of Zurich. Among those who died was the entire local council, all members of the local school board and the village post office clerk. But this accident led to immediate improvements in flight safety. Swiss Air changed to using only non-flammable hydraulic fluid after the accident. Another example of crew error which led to a fire took place near Toronto in Canada, on the 7th of May 1970, when an Air Canada McDonnell Douglas DC-8 exploded after leaking fuel ignited, 109 on board died. This was an example of pilot error, but also a confused use of spoilers, which are designed to slow an aircraft down rapidly. It was the misuse that led directly to a fire and explosions, as you'll hear. Had the crew followed the checklist, this accident would not have happened, as is the case with so many accidents. Captain Peter Hamilton and First Officer Donald Rowland had flown together before this terrible incident, but they seemed to be out of kilter when it came to exactly when to arm the spoilers. The checklist indicated the spoilers should have been armed at the beginning of the final approach, yet both agreed they'd armed the spoilers in the middle of the landing flare when the engines were throttled back and the plane was really close to the runway. This is not part of the approved procedure. The second officer, Gordon Hill, correctly called for the spoiler deployment as they approached the runway, but both Rowland and Hamilton ignored him. Then things began to go haywire pretty rapidly. Captain Hamilton was piloting the landing and said, All right, give them to me on the flare. Sixty feet from the runway, the captain began to reduce power in preparation for the flare and said, OK, to the first officer. Instead of just arming the spoilers, Rowland deployed them fully. That caused the aircraft to sink heavily, and the captain realized the error and applied full thrust to all four jet engines. But it was too late. The plane hit the runway with enough force to break number four engine right off the wing, and the tail hit the ground. This is where they made their second big mistake. They decided to go around, and by now they were trailing fuel, which ignited. Of course, the pilots could not see this. Worse, 
because of the wreckage of the engine and part of the wing on the runway, they now had to use an alternative runway. This wasted more time, and time was running out fast. Two and a half minutes after the initial crash, as the pilots maneuvered the plane back to the alternate runway, the outboard section of the right wing above engine number four exploded, causing parts of the right wing to break off. Six seconds later, a second explosion blew off number three engine, and a few seconds later, a third explosion destroyed the entire right wing. The aircraft then went into a violent nosedive, hitting the ground at 220 knots or 410 kilometers per hour, killing all passengers and crew on board. After this terrible accident, Air Canada changed its training manuals to clarify when to arm and deploy spoilers, and seven other changes were recommended, including that McDonnell Douglas should reinforce the structural integrity of the DC-8's wings and fuel tank. The final example in this episode is of South African Airways Flight 295, probably one of the more mysterious in-flight fires where the cause has never been identified. It is known as the Helderberg disaster in South Africa, that flight was en route from Chiang Kai-shek International Airport in Taipei, Taiwan to Jan Smuts International Airport in Johannesburg with a planned stopover in Plaisance Airport in Mauritius. The pilot was 49-year-old Captain Darby Ace, who had 13,843 hours experience, 36-year-old First Officer David Atwell and 37-year-old Relief First Officer Jeffrey Birchall with 7,300 and 8,700 hours experience respectively. There was also flight engineer Giuseppe Joe Bellagarda and relief flight engineer Alan Daniel with 7,800 hours and 1,500 hours of experience, respectively. These were experienced aviators. The crash on 28th of November 1987 involved a Boeing 747 combi or cargo and passenger plane combination. The fire started in the cargo area. The plane broke up in midair and crashed into the Indian Ocean east of Mauritius, killing all 159 people on board. That, everyone agrees, is what happened. However, that is where the agreement ends, because there is considerable debate about the cause of the fire. An extensive salvage operation was mounted to try to recover the black box recorders. In January 1989, the cockpit voice recorder was recovered from nearly 5 kilometers underwater, or 16,100 feet. The flight data recorder was never found. The United States Navy sent aircraft from Diego Garcia, which were used to conduct immediate search and rescue operations in conjunction with the French Navy. By the time the first surface debris was located 12 hours after impact, it had drifted far from the impact location. Oil slicks and eight bodies showed signs of extreme trauma. The official inquiry headed by Judge Cecil Margot was unable to determine the cause of the fire. This lack of a conclusion led to conspiracy theories and a subsequent post-apartheid investigation in the years following the accident. First speculation was a bomb. This was still apartheid South Africa, and the African National Congress had conducted a bombing campaign against the white minority government. Experts searched for indications of an explosion on the initial pieces of wreckage, and they failed to find surface pitting or impact cavities and spatter cavities caused by white hot fragments from explosive devices, and that meant no bomb. The investigators then drew blood samples from two of the recovered bodies and found that they had soot in their trachea, indicating these had died from smoke inhalation before the aircraft crashed. Clearly the fire had burned for some time. The National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, in Washington, D.C., analyzed the cockpit voice recorder 
and it failed to yield any useful information. Around 28 minutes into the recording, the CVR indicated that the fire alarm sounded. 14 seconds after the fire alarm, the circuit breakers began to pop. Investigators believe that around 80 circuit breakers failed in total. The CVR cable then failed after the alarm. The recording revealed the extent of the fire, but not what the pilots thought had caused it. After some sleuthing, it was discovered that the front right pallet in the cargo area was the seat of the fire. The manifest said the pallet consisted mostly of computers and polystyrene packaging. The investigators said that the localized fire likely came in contact with the packaging and produced gases that accumulated near the ceiling. They said the gases ignited into a flash fire that affected the entire cargo hold, with the walls and ceiling showing major fire damage. But, to this day, there's been an argument about what was in this pallet. Some say it could have started with lithium batteries contained in the computers exploding or spontaneously combusting. This has been ruled out as unlikely. The Boeing Combi design, though, came under scrutiny. Boeing's fire test in the Combi models did not accurately match the conditions of the Helderberg's cargo hold. It was found that the extremely high temperatures of the fire, thought to be over 500 degrees centigrade, caused the gases to flow into the actual passenger area itself. The FAA confirmed this finding in 1993 with its own series of tests, and SAA's use of the Combi and the Federal Aviation Administration introduced new regulations in 1993 specifying that manual firefighting must not be the primary means of fire suppression in the cargo compartment of the main deck. Complying with these new standards required weight increases, which made the 747 Combi no longer viable. Nevertheless, the Combi remained in the 747 lineup until 2002, when the last 747-400 Combi was delivered to KLM of Holland. Then in 1992, the Journal of the Royal Aeronautical Society alleged that SAA had been flouting international rules and the Helderberg could have been carrying missile rocket fuel as cargo. The South African Arms Agency Arms Corps was named. South Africa was under an arms embargo at the time. South African government therefore had to buy arms clandestinely. Dr. David Klatzal, a forensic scientist hired by Boeing, then postulated that the South African government placed a rocket system in the cargo hold and that the vibration caused unstable ammonium perchlorate to ignite, which is a chemical compound used as a missile propellant. Local journalists called it by a somewhat more prosaic name, Red Mercury. Dr. Kladzar believed the captain did not land the pilot directly after the fire because he knew it was carrying rocket fuel illegally. Other experts call that a long shot. As a highly experienced aviator, He'd wanted to get down as quickly as anyone else, knowing how fatal in-flight fires are. We probably will never know what caused this fire, which is ironic, as in the history of these sorts of disasters, the cause of the vast majority of in-flight fires are solvable, and this one happened in the modern era. Interestingly, Alaskan Airlines was the last known operator of the Boeing 747 Combi until relatively recently, 2011. Nowadays, many airlines have converted their combis into either full passenger service or full freighter service for the potential of more profitable operations. I will come back to in-flight fires in this series, but at this point, we must land and tie down. Next episode, I'll take a closer look at unusual accidents, and we will meet another woman who was the lone survivor of a plane crash disaster. So until then, 
aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. Goodbye.